The story is told of the day Farmer Jones got out of his car and while heading for his friend's door, he noticed there was a pig with a wooden leg running around the front yard. His curiosity aroused him, so he asked Fred, how'd that pig get him a wooden leg? He said, well, Jones, he had some mighty special pig right there. He says, a while back, a wild boar attacked me. I was out walking in the woods, and that pig there came a-running and went after that boar, chased him away. That pig saved my life. He says, so the boar tore his leg up? He said, oh, no, no, he was fine. But a little later, as that fire started in the shed up against the barn, well, that old pig started squealing like he was stuck, woke us up. And before we got out of there, you know, the darn thing had herded all the animals out of the barn and saved every one of them. He said, so he burned his leg in the fire? He said, no, no, he was fine. A little smoky, but he was all right. He says, well, well no. he goes, well, there was another time my tractor hit a rock, rolled down the hill into the pond. I was not clean out. When I came to, the pig had dove into the pond, dragged me out, licking my face, sure saved my life. So, all right, Fred, well, tell me then, you know, if the boar didn't do it, the fire didn't do it, then when you hit your head and the tractor didn't do it, he says, well, how'd the pig get the wooden leg? He goes, well, you know, a pig that special, a pig like that, you sure don't want to go eating them all at once. <laughs> you know? Oh, the poor pig. You're missing the point of the story. It was a made-up pig, ladies. It wasn't a real pig. You know, I thought of that story. I was reminded of men I know who are just as confused as uh, Farmer Fred, you know. Their struggle was not whether to honor or eat a pig. Their struggle or their battle was whether to honor God or live to please themselves. You know, perhaps you can relate to such a struggle. Maybe you're involved in such a tug of war even today. On the one hand, you want to do what's right before God. You want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. You desire to be used by Him for His purposes and His glory. Yet, if the truth be told, you spend the majority of your time doing things that have absolutely no eternal value or significance. On top of that, you've also noticed that very few men finish strong. You know, the man that hangs in there for the long haul with his wife and his children and his God is an exception these days. And with that in mind, today on this Father's Day, I want to share with you a winning strategy, a biblical blueprint for a proven plan that will enable us to run in such a manner that God will call us winners in this race he calls life. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, we find one of many admonitions uh, that the Bible tells us in order to finish strong. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Now, we're told that uh, God, who has begun a good work in us, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But specifically, the Bible is relating to those who have repented of their sin. Men who have uh, turned from sin and turned to God and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sin. Men who recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. That he rose again from the dead, conquering death and sin and the enemy, and offers eternal life to those who will receive his gift that was done on their behalf. Jesus Christ pays the entry fee to the race that God wants us to run. And in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. And I buffet or discipline my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, as man, one of the many things that I love about the Bible is that it is filled with what I call guy stuff. Things like sports and warfare. You stop and think about fighting the good fight. What guy do you know that doesn't like a good fight? You know, fight the good fight. You know, finish the course. Keep the faith. Run with endurance. Box with aim. Be a good soldier. Put on the full armor of God. Man, I mean, you know, if you can't like that, fellas, I don't know what's going on in your life, but we're talking about some stuff that it's like, hey, you know what? Because for years, I always had a misconception about the Bible and those who read the Bible, that somehow they were less than men who would read the Bible, you know, and then you begin to read it and you begin to recognize and understand, you know, it takes a real man, a godly man, to walk the way that God wants us to walk in a world that is an alien and in rebellion against God. It takes a real man to stand up to the crowd. It takes a real man to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It takes a godly man to stand up in a culture and say, you know what, that is wrong. It is wrong before God, it is wrong. And I don't care what price I have to pay for shouting out that it is wrong, but I am willing to pay that price because it's more important for me to be right before God than to have the applause of men. It takes a real man to stand up for what is right before God. You know, 1 Corinthians 9 says, Run in such a way that you may win. Don't be content, what he's saying, with just being in the race, but go for the gold. Go for the prize. You know, over 20 years of working with professional athletes and competing in different sports, even myself, it has taught me that, you know, there are three types of athletes that I have become familiar with. The first one is that guy who's just happy to make the team. The guy who, you know, he, he gets his picture in the yearbook. He gets the uniform. He makes the squad. He makes the cut. His picture's in the media guide. He's just happy to be there. You know, the guy in double-A baseball or triple-A baseball that gets a call to be in the big leagues, and man, he doesn't care about anything but just getting called up, and he'll sit on the bench, and he'll eat seeds forever. <laughs> he, you know, he just wants to be there. He's just happy to be there. And then there's the other guy who says, you know what? I mean, I'm not happy to be here. I should be here. Not only should I be here, but I should be competing. I should be out on the field. Let somebody else sit here and eat seeds and spit and scratch himself. I want to be out on the field eating seeds, spitting and scratching myself. You know, but, but it's like, hey, you know, I want to be in the game. And yet there's even one other athlete, another type of athlete that goes beyond just the guy content to be on the team, the guy that wants to play the game. And that's the guy who says, you know what, I am content with nothing less than giving our best to win the prize, to win the bling bling. <laughs> Show and tell, fellas, brought it out for today. Yeah, you know, you know, I don't wear it at all. I'm just like the bling bling. If we had a little light right now, it's like one of those full, few pieces of jewelry that, you know, men and women alike come and say, can I see the ring? Like, yeah, you can see the ring, you know, because it's the bling bling, you know, it's what everybody competes for, it's what they all want to play for, it's all what they want to have. We see it all the time, guys saying, you know, I want to go on a team where I get a chance to win. 
I played 15, 18, 20 years. I've never been in the playoffs. I've never won. I want to win. I, you know, money at this point, nothing else matters to me. I want the ring. I want the prize. And I'm content with nothing less. How about you? You know, which category best describes your Christian life? As I mentioned, Jesus paid the entry fee. Now he says for us, you men, us, to run the race in the way that we may win. Don't be content on being in the roster. Don't be content on being used every now and then. But go for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, there's so many men, and, and, I, and it, just, it, it, it troubles me so badly at times to see men who strive for excellence in everything but their Christian life, who want to accomplish everything the world has to offer and could care less about anything God wants us to do. And it just troubles me because it's all temporary. It's all fading. It's all perishable. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. It has no eternal significance whatsoever. And we're out there and we're beating our head against the wall day in and day out, every day of our life to try to achieve things the world says are important and neglect everything that God says truly, eternally is. All I'm saying is we need to be excellent in everything. We need to work heartily as under the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom we serve. We need to be as excellent in our careers as we are in our faith. We need to be as excellent in our pursuit of these other things as we are in the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of godliness, the things that matter over the course of a lifetime and for all of eternity. You need to ask yourself a question and examine your own life and say, what am I doing that has any eternal significance whatsoever? I have what the world has to offer. I've got the clothes. I've got the cars. I've got the material things. I've got all of that. You know, or I'm struggling to achieve that. And you need to talk to somebody that has it because what he'll tell you is if he's honest, you know what? It doesn't do it. Because God's people are content with nothing less than finding God's will for their life and then pursuing that course of action. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find a winning strategy. And I want to share with you just three points, three insights that we get from this particular passage that will give us this winning strategy, this biblical blueprint to run in a way that is, that is not only pleasing before God, but guarantees, guarantees us to run in a way that we may win. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, we read, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. The first thing we learn in order to win, we must run light. And there's two key words that jumped out as I was studying this passage. The first is the word therefore. And anytime you're studying the Bible, reading through the Bible, and you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what's it there for? And the reason it's there is to connect the previous passage to the one that's about to be introduced. It's a bridge that connects two trains of thought. 
And when you see the word therefore in verse, tw- uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, it's told, Therefore, sin- since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, us also as they did, let us also do what they did. Who are they? Everybody that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter in the Bible. I see men in sports who, who strive to be excellent at what they do so that one day they can reach the ultimate goal, which is to be inducted into their sports hall of fame. Whether it's basketball or baseball or football or whatever sport that it is, the ultimate compliment, the ultimate honor is to be recognized for a lifetime of professional work that says you are in the elite category of everybody who preceded you. And I sit and go, well, you know what? How many of us say, you know what, Lord? How my, I would like my name to be included in your great hall of faith that lasts for all of eternity. These men and women in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told, are men and women of faith. By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It says, now faith is the assurance in verse 1 of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are yet seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the strong conviction of things that are not seen. See, what is faith? Well, faith is action that's taken based upon God's word. Faith is not, as so many folks wrongly believe, belief in spite of evidence. Faith is, is, is obedience to the word of God in spite of perceived consequences. If you'll notice, every person that's listed here obeyed God and took action in spite of what they thought would happen to them by doing so. We're told faith, by faith, Abel offered to God. By faith, Abraham obeyed by going. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. By faith, Abraham, when tested, offered up. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Joseph gave orders concerning his remains. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. By faith, every one of these men and women did something. They acted upon what God was leading them to do. There was action. And we're told that we also must act. Let us also act upon the word of God as these men and women acted upon the word of God. In spite of the perceived consequences, they were obedient to God's calling in their life. And they did what God required of them. And God honored them through time and eternity in his word. The second word that steps out is, stands out is the word encumbrance. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. The word encumbrance means those things that trip us up, slow us down, that aren't conducive to running in a way that will win. They're things that are in and of themselves not necessarily right or wrong. They're just things that have no real benefit to us in the pursuit of doing what it is that God would have us do. So let us also lay aside every encumbrance as those in Hebrews 11 laid aside every encumbrance. And that's why they were able to move forward and not trip and stumble and bumble all over themselves because things were holding them back. 
They laid aside every encumbrance. Anyone that ever ran a race or runs races knows the importance of running light and to lay aside every encumbrance that will hinder your performance. You know, back in the day when I was running marathons, I'd see folks all the time who would, you know, shave their heads or cut their hair short and run with light running clothing that even, you know, weigh their running shoes. How much did they weigh? Because when you look at how much that weighs over the course of running a marathon for 26-odd miles, you know, it all adds up. They would also watch what they ate, not just as it crossed their lips. They would watch and determine, is this conducive to what I want to accomplish? And if it's not, then I'll discipline myself and I'll say pass on that because it's not worth the price that will have to be paid in order to run in the way that I want to compete and perform. You know, they ask those questions. You know, is this, is this going to help or hinder? I like the... The cartoon that I saw recently about uh, a man who was in the bathroom, you know, and his gut was hanging over his belt, and he was standing on the scale, and he was trying to see how much he weighed, and he was sucking in his gut, and his wife walked in and goes, sucking in your gut's not the problem. That's not going to help. He said, yes, it will help. She said, no, it won't help. He said, yes, it will help. No, it won't help. Yes, it will help. She goes, well, how in the world can sucking in your gut help? He goes, it's the only way I can see the numbers. You know, it's kind of like, hey, wait a minute now. That's not the problem. The scale's not the problem. You're the problem. You know, it's these things in general. If we're going to be winners for God's sake, we must also, as those in Hebrews 11 did, lay aside every encumbrance. Not necessarily things that are right or wrong, and of themselves, it's really not an issue. You know, I, I mentioned to you, and I'll give you an illustration personally, you know, in this battle that I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of against cancer, it became clear that, you know, I should alter my diet. All the counsel that I got, all the reading that I did, all the study that I did indicated, you know, it was really important to alter my diet. So I've eliminated, you know, I've eliminated those things that are inherently not good for my condition. And so, you know, I've eliminated red meat, and I've eliminated dairy products, and I've eliminated sugar because cancer loves sugar. I've eliminated white flour because it converts to sugar. I've eliminated caffeine. I've eliminated artificial sweeteners. I've eliminated soft drinks. In other words, I've eliminated everything I used to eat. <laughs> and I've gotten introduced to things like vegetables and fruit. You know, and, and, and it's important. You know, the, the point is, is that the goal winning this battle is more important to me than the temporary pleasures of certain food. And see, and that's the message in Hebrews 12. The message is this. What's important to you? Whatever's important to you, you will be willing to pay whatever price needs to be paid in order to accomplish the goal. You will lay aside every encumbrance. If living to please God is important to you, you will lay aside everything that holds you back in your pursuit of godliness, righteousness, holiness, and obedience to God. Too many of us say it's important, but we are kidding ourselves and we're not fooling God. We say it's important to be a godly man, and yet, you know what? We are so encumbered by the things of the world, we are just fooling ourselves. But God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. 
He's not fooled by our nonsense and our justification and our rationalization and all the different things that we manufacture, make up, so that we can continue to live any way that we want to live in, 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 in lieu of obedience to God. We, we need to ask ourselves the question, you know, what is it that's holding me back from being what God wants me to be? Pleasing God is more important than the temporary pleasures of this life. Are your hobbies more important than your pursuit of God? How much time do you spend lowering your golf handicap? How much time do you spend on the fishing trip or vacations? How much time do you spend traveling? How much time do you spend doing the things that you enjoy doing? And I know people are going, oh, you know, you got to have balance. I'm not saying you don't have to have balance. All I'm asking you is this. Where does God fit into your schedule? Where does he come in your priority list? we got all these things that take us away from the pursuit of righteousness and holiness and obedience and godliness. Our pursuit of material possessions. Our pursuit of all the things the world has to offer. The Bible calls it the deceitfulness of riches. For the love of money, many have wandered from the faith. What is it that you are pursuing? Are you pursuing God with the same zest, the same gusto, the same sense of urgency? See, sometimes our encumbrances are other people or their relationships. It's more important for me to be liked by this group of people than it is for me to be pleasing to God. It's more important for me to get along with my teammates and my classmates and my peers than it is to do what's right before God. And you know what? And we don't get much better as we get older. It's more important to please my coworkers or my boss than it is to do what's right before God. One of the greatest stories, one of the best illustrations that, I, that I, I'll never forget. Years ago when I was working with the Rams, I had a young guy who was engaged to get married. Both of them were believers. Both of them had trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They were excited about their relationship and the direction that they were going. And one night, he calls me up, and he's all upset. He said, Chuck, i got to meet you. I said, what's wrong? He goes, i got to meet you. He goes, you know that we're engaged. I said, I know. He goes, but i got to talk to you about something that came up last night. I said, what is it? So we got together, and we had lunch. And he said, you know, I sat down, and I was explaining to my fiance how excited I was to be in ministry and to work with college students and athletes. And he was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he wanted to go back to LSU, and that's where his heart was and what he wanted to do. And, and, uh, and I said, well, that's great. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, Shannon came out here to California because she was Miss USA, and she wants to get into, you know, acting and modeling and use the platform God has given her to go in that direction. She has no interest in going the direction God wants me to go. And here was a man who understood the word of God and he had love for God. And I said, hey, you know, Todd, let me ask you a simple question. What's the greatest commandment? And in the middle of Red Robin, he goes, I knew you were going to say that. And everybody turned and looked. I said, what? I didn't say anything. I asked you a question. He goes, I knew it. Why? What did he know? He knew that, you know what? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that you put nobody before God in your life. I said, well, what do you think you should do? <clears throat> knew it. He goes, I knew you were going to say that. And I always like when people say to me, you know what? I knew you were going to turn me back to the Word of God. That is the greatest compliment any one of us could ever get. I knew you would tell me the truth of God's Word. Anyway, a few weeks went by and he called me and said, we broke up. I said, it's going to be all right. 
He goes, it doesn't seem like it right now. He goes, man, I was engaged to Miss USA. <laughs> so that's going to be all right. So the next offseason, he called me from his home in Louisiana. About three months after that, he said, Chuck, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He goes, I met a gal. I said, really? He goes, yeah. You know, and he was just like, <laughs> I said, well, what happened? He goes, well, we were working together with Campus Crusade at LSU. She has a heart for kids. She has a heart for the Lord. She has a heart for reaching kids with the gospel. And anyway, we're getting married. I said, really? He goes, yeah. <laughs> I said, that's great. And at the time, he was playing for the Broncos. And about a year went by, and he called me, and he said, hey, I just want to tell you, we had a baby. A few years went by, he called me again. We had another one. I haven't heard from him in a few years, but you know what? What he learned is something we all need to learn, and is this. When you commit your ways to the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. There is nothing that you and I could ever give up that God will not restore a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. There is no relationship. There is no material thing. There is no pursuit of anything in this world. That if you give it up, that God will say to you, you know what? Hey, I will give it back to you a hundred times in God's kingdom. Does it mean this side of eternity? Not necessarily. Because everybody in Hebrews 11, you know what? Many of them never realized the promises of God until they were in his presence. They never lived to see the day, but yet they were involved in being obedient and taking their part in walking the walk and the journey. See, what or who are you allowing to hold you back from doing that all God has gifted you and called you to do for his glory? You need to lay it aside. See, general encumbrances are very personal. To him that knows the right thing to do and to him it doesn't do it, to him it's not sin. It may not necessarily be sin for you or me, but it is for the person that God is calling to do something. But he also says, and the sin which so easily entangles us, it's very specific. What is that sin? Well, I can't help but think in context, since therefore connects Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12, is that the sin that so easily entangles us oftentimes is the sin of lack of obedience to God's calling. It's a sin of lack of faith. It's a sin of not being obedient to where God wants you to go, to what God wants you to do. You know, what is that specific sin that holds you back from running to win? You know, I think about this, and I, I struggled with this, this sin of lack, of lack of obedience or lack of faith. You know, I believed in the struggle that I had that God had called me to start and to be pastor of this church. You know, I love teaching the Word of God, and, you know, and I never really cared much about the politics of churches. Never really cared about the variety of opinions about what color paint should be or carpets or whether you should play a piano or an organ or whether you can have drums, you know, the snare from the pit of hell, you know, or, or, you know, or, or whether it should be traditional or contemporary worship music or who should park in the front and who has to walk from the zoo and who gets locked out and who doesn't get locked out. And, you know, th those kind of things, I think you're picking up on the fact that, you know, they're not things that I really get too excited about. And I certainly don't micromanage. It's like, you know what? Hey, my heart is for preaching the truth of God's word. And yet at the same time, it became very evident and clear to me that God was closing a door that would not allow me to do that any longer. And I must obey God rather than man. And I couldn't neglect that gift that was in me. And God moved this and worked this. And it became very evident this, this is where God wants me. And I have confessed before God that sin of God, if I was hesitant if I was, you know, not obedient 
because I didn't like some of the other stuff that came with the package. Forgive me for that because I am here to serve you. I am here to please you. I am here to honor you. I am here to do whatever it is that you're calling me to do, regardless of all this other junk that comes with the package. It is obedience in spite of those perceived consequences. And so that's why I'm here. And, you know, and as we think about this and consider this, and I make a joke about the fact that, you know, God shoved me into the pool, but the reality of it is I'm in the pool, and I'm going to swim in a way to win. See, again, I ask the question of you is, what is the sin that holds you back? Is it the sin of laziness or spiritual indifference? Is it the sin of lust and sexual immorality? I know so many people who, are, who struggle with the sin of sexual immorality in our culture. They seem to forget and not realize or understand in their struggle that goes on there that says, listen, all sex outside a heterosexual marriage is sin before God. I don't care if you love each other. I don't care if you're engaged. I don't care how close you've become. I don't care what your future plans are. Those things don't matter. It's obedience today, now, present moment. And they form, it's all type of sin of immorality that you, know, you go through. And, and homosexuality, and it breaks my heart when I hear people who claim to be homosexuals who love Jesus. That is just nonsense because Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. And what you're doing is sin before God. We see it all the time. We hear the lie all around us. And as a result, we buy into it. But if you're truly born again, the Spirit of God is convicting your heart and there's a struggle and turmoil going on. And you've got to decide whether to be obedient to God or disobedient. But don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Pornography. Drunkenness. Drug usage. That goes not just illegal drugs, prescription drugs. So many people lean on drugs to get through the pain of their life. We need to lean on the Lord. We need to trust in Him. And I'm not saying there aren't times that we need to be medicated. But it's like, is, is that become, you know, your crutch? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Believe Him. The sin of gluttony and lack of discipline in our, in our, you know, how we take care of our bodies and what we eat and whether we exercise or not exercise. And, you know, if nothing else, if God chooses not to take me home through cancer in my diet change and everything else, he's taught me to take better care of myself so that maybe I'll be stronger so I can run in the way that God wants me to run in order to better serve him. So if he doesn't take me home, maybe I'm going to live longer because, you know, of the changes I've had to make. And like they said, if anybody can heal someone by a change of diet, I'm a good candidate. <laughs> but we need to look at those lying and gossip and racism and greed and coveting and gambling and, you know, robbing God of his tithe. All of these things are sin before God that easily entangles us. And I think of the word entangle, and it's like running a race with ropes around your feet. We're trying to oh, serve God. We're, we want to run the race. We, you know, we want to be pleasing to God. Oh, here, here, use me. Oh, here, use me. And we're falling all over twice, stri you know, tripping and falling and bumbling and stumbling and dropping the rock everywhere that we go because we're trying to carry all this junk with us. Oh, but we're going to please you too. How foolish we are. What can you accomplish? Got to give it all up. That's why salvation is so difficult, and the message next week will touch on that. That's why we have to deny ourselves daily, pick up our cross, and follow Him. 
Let's not add Jesus to your life at a moment in time, then live any way you want until eternity comes ushering you in. We're here to serve Him. We're here to please Him. We're here to reach others for the kingdom of God by the way we conduct our lives. See, to win, we cannot be content with the weakest part of our game. You know, there's an old adage that says in golf, you know, drive for show, putt for dough. But the reality is you better be able to do all of it because you'll never win otherwise. So a whole bunch of guys can drive the ball far and long down the middle of the fairway, but then it takes them six more shots to get down on a par four. You don't hear about much of them. You better have every aspect of your game in order if you're going to win. God says, don't be content on that weak area of your life. Well, it's just this one area. You should see all the things that God has done in my life. It's just this one little closet of sin that I still have and hang on to. What? Confess, repent, and move on. You know, one last thought. This is just an observation that I've come up with, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I have discovered that, you know, there's different, you know, trials and temptations in different seasons of life. Youthful, you know, temptations are, you know, passions, you know, those lusts, those physical appetites, you know, the old sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that type of thing, you know, peer pressure, you know, that all comes with youth. Then there's middle age where it's like we start to become, you know, possessed by our possessions. It's not the passions of the physical life, it's the possessions that the world has to offer. You know, it's those second homes, the one in the mountain, one in the desert, the boat, the cars, the planes, the toys, the hobbies, the money now we have for green fees and things that we never had when we were younger. And now we've got a little extra disposable, called disposable income. And so now it takes us into all these different things that we do. And then older folks, it's just simply pride. It's that arrogance of, you know, there's only one right way to do it. And this is the way it should be. Why is that? Because I say so. And why is that? Because I'm older. I know better. Well, you know what? You got a bad attitude. You didn't learn anything about bad attitudes along the way. <laughs> You're still a little whiny, a little whiny. You don't even know how to express yourself. It's like, hey, you know what? It's arrogance is all that it is. And I know some people, you know, I get offended by some of the things I say. Well, you know what? That's all right. You know, because, you know, on, on, a fun, on a funny note, I was watching, uh, who was the guy that, that used to be on TV? Oh, Willard Scott used to do this thing when he had old, you know, the 100-year-old people that they used to celebrate birthdays and stuff. And they asked this guy, who was 100 years old, right? And here's this great moment. They're interviewing this guy. and said, you know, what's the best thing about being 100 years of age? And the guy thought for a second. He goes, no peer pressure. <laughs> that great? That's the best. You know, you outlive everybody that you were trying to please your whole life. It's like, you know what, please God, because he's eternal. You can't outlive God. You know, but it's just that, hey, run to win. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles. Strategy number two is notice this, and let us run with endurance. You know, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, we're born again in a, in, in, for time and eternity. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. February 16th, 1978, I repented of sin, I trusted in Christ as my Savior, believed that he died on the cross for my sins, believed that he rose from the dead, received him as my Lord and Savior. At that time, people said to me, you know what, this will go away, this will pass, this will fade. And they didn't recognize and understand the truth of the word of God, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. 
Old things pass away. All things become new. I'll never be the person that I used to be because when the God of the universe gets a hold of your life and makes you a new creature, you're not who you were. In fact, it wouldn't be a bad idea every time that anybody comes to faith in Christ would come up with a new name because that old person's dead. That kid and young guy that grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, died February, you know, February 16th, 1978. He died. And he, became a, he died to himself, and he became alive to God for his purposes and for his glory. It hasn't gone away. Everyone loves a great comeback. That's why, you know, it was so sweet after game six of the World Series, bling, bling, to see that, you know, we're losing five to nothing. It's in the seventh inning. There's one out, you know, and, and no, one out. Don't correct me. I was there. I know what I'm talking about. Now, we don't need any of that kind of stuff. I've relived this moment over and over and over again. So you're going to correct me. You better have your stats straight, buddy. Although you didn't even know when to stand up for how old you were, how many kids you had, and everything else. There was one out. Anyway, make a long story short, two singles and a home run. It's five to three. We go into the eighth inning and, you know, a couple more runs. It's six to five, and we win. And then game seven, we take care of business. And everybody loves people who are in it for the long haul. You know, and, and what troubles me in the world we live in, it's filled with quitters. First sign of trouble, quit. First obstacle, quit. First difficulty, oh, I guess this isn't where God's leading. Wah, 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 wah. Why is that? Read your Bible. Man, I mean, every person that was obedient to God, every step along the way, they ran into obstacles. And what God wanted to teach him was, you know what? I'm bigger than the obstacles. Trust me. Follow me. Love me with all your heart. And guess what? I'll show you that no obstacle will ever thwart God's purposes or God's kingdom. Expect obstacles. If you, are getting, if you have no resistance, you have no obstacles in your life, you're not in the midst of a spiritual battle constantly, then you're not living for Jesus. If your life is smooth sailing, you better take a good hard look at what it is you're pursuing because it is not God's kingdom because with it comes pain, suffering, trials, and tribulation. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You know, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, all well-meaning people came to me and said, you know, you need to slow down, you need to take it easy, you need to focus on yourself, you need to focus on your health. And my answer to them and to all of people, everybody is this, there's no way. There is no way. Because if I'm going to die, I'm going to die going strong for Jesus. I'm not going to sit back, take it easy, relax, and have them say, hey, you had three months left, why'd you quit running the race? You know, why'd you quit? Well, I was trying to get ready for the next. You didn't have a next leg. This was your leg to run. It's appointed. I appointed it. I know the day. And so, you know what? I'm not going to go out laying around trying to get better when I could be doing what God calls me to do in the midst of all of it. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a balance in my wife. That, you know, you need to take a nap or something, you know, as she tries to drag me from the floor or whatever. But, but it's like, all right, I understand that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to learn that. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? If I'm going out, I'm going out obedient to God's calling in my life. See, quitting is so easy. I love this story. Abraham Davenport, May 19th, 1780. Mysterious phenomenon took place. 
thick darkness, perhaps caused by smoke from forest fires combined with dense fog, covered areas of New England and filled people with fear. Many people thought at the time the end of the world was coming. The Connecticut legislature was meeting that day, and many members were urging adjournment. Abraham Davenport, however, proclaimed to his colleagues, I am against adjourning. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that you bring some candles in so we can get the business. I love that. That's the best. If the day is coming, it's coming. But if it's not, I want to be found busy doing what God has called me to do. How about you? Don't let the enemy sidetrack you. Don't like, let him focus you on you. See, there's just, you know, it's, you see quitters all the time, body language. You see it in games. You say, you know, I, when I was watching the Lakers, it was like, you know, it's truth be known, they quit. You know, and it doesn't take anybody that's been around long enough to look on the faces of people who are getting beat like a drum. And, I, you know, and there's a point. You get beat like a drum. Sometimes you get beat down to where you want to quit. But you could see it. You could see it walking out on the court. You can see it sitting on the bench. You can see people looking down. You could see the mutiny that was going on. You could just see it. They quit because the enemy or their adversary, their opponent, stuck it to them. And they didn't make the adjustments. They lost heart. God's people, we get beat up all the time, those fiery darts of the enemy. But he says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our toil in the Lord is never in vain. Don't get down. Look up. Which ends our message with this. If we're going to win, we need to run light. We need to run long. It's a marathon. And we need to run looking. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It doesn't get any sweeter than that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you don't grow weary and you don't lose heart. We must always remember that he who began a good work in you and us will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Some will say, man, but I've blown it. Hey, read your Bible. It's hard to read without finding somebody that hasn't just stumbled, bumbled, fumbled along the way. But the wonderful thing is it never disqualifies us for service. God says, you know what? Agree. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn from it. And I'll pick you up. I'll dust you off. And we'll move forward. Abraham Lincoln said to the nation, he said, I'm not so concerned that you have fallen, only that you get back up. See, and as a pastor, as a person who loves you, I say this, I'm not so concerned that you've fallen. I'm only concerned that you get back up. I'm concerned that you allow the Lord to pick you up and dust you off and then to resume the purpose that he has for your life. It's never too late to do what's right before God. It's never too late to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's never too late to be obedient to his calling in your life. Run looking. The word is expectation. To focus on the finish line. To keep our eyes on Jesus. You're looking at people, they'll let you down every time. 
My desire is to walk in a manner that's worthy of my calling. My desire is to be like the Apostle Paul and live a life that's exemplary of what God would have us to live as godly men. But at the same time, that's never a substitute to watch me instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus. Watch me, hold me accountable, hold me accountable to the Word of God, but don't ever mistake watching me or any other human being for fixing your eyes on Jesus. He endured the pain. He despised the shame. He finished the race. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. His life was a sprint from Bethlehem to the cross to accomplish the purposes in which he came, which was to give his life a ransom for many. And he conquered the enemy and he conquered death. And he is alive today. And he is seated, completed his work at the right hand of God the Father from where he will come one day again to judge the living and the dead. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. To be successful in any sport, you've got to see the ball to hit the ball. To be successful in running the Christian life, we've got to see Jesus in order to overcome through his strength all the obstacles that are set before us. You want to run to win? Run light, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles. Run long, you know what, fellas? Women as well. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. It doesn't matter that you walked with the Lord for five years, then took, you know, you took the last 20 off. You know what? It matters that you're obedient today. You need to get back on course. It doesn't matter what you accomplished back in the day. You're still here today. It matters what you're doing now. Be obedient in the present. You know, and the last is run looking. And that's how Paul summarized his life. When he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all, to all who love his appearing. There is no better words than any godly man or woman can ever hear than this. You did good. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. There is nothing that this world has to offer that will ever be a substitute for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and for your truth. Thank you for the way that you give us a swift kick every now and then when we need it. Your word is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. God, I know there are many of us who need corrected. We need to lay aside every encumbrance, those things that are keeping us from being everything you want us to be, and more importantly, the sin. There's no room in the life of God's people for sin. How foolish that is to think that. What shall we say? Shall, you know, shall sin increase? so that God's grace will increase in our life? And he said, no, you who have died to sin, you know, have been freed from it. Stop presenting your members and your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them as instruments of righteousness before God. God, may we recognize and understand that we're in a marathon, but we're, we're to run it one step at a time, one day at a time. For each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't be anxious for tomorrow but to live in the moment obedient to your calling and your giftedness in our life, to be used by you for your glory and for your purposes, for your kingdom's sake. And God, as we get discouraged in life, not to put our heads down and walk around shuffling our feet or looking at the ground, we're to look up. 
We're to look at Jesus. We're to keep our eyes fixed on him as Stephen did as he was laying in the pit as he was stoned to death. His eyes were fixed on Jesus. And he saw him clearly so that he didn't grow weary. He didn't grow you know, cold of heart or lose heart. God, may we be steadfast and immovable all the days that you have given us in our life, always abounding in the work you've called us to do, knowing that our toil is not in vain. May we leave here today committed and dedicated to giving everything in our life to you, our heart, our soul, our spirit, our bodies, our minds, everything. May you use us mightily. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.